Well, as the establishment reels from another apparently self-harming vote, this time by Americans, Talking Point is asking what role has the media played in misinforming, misleading or just distracting voters? Mesmerised by the antics of populace chasing celebrity news, giving away its content for free, obsessed with providing false balance on some issues but indulging in liberal bias the rest of the time, has journalism become not just debased but a threat to the democratic process? In studio, George Carey is a filmmaker and the creator of BBC's Newsnight programme. He's in Ireland for the Claron Media Conference taking place in Dublin this weekend. Terry Prone is chairman of the Communications Clinic. Hugh Linehan is culture editor of the Irish Times. And Harry Brown is a lecturer in journalism in DIT. Harry Brown, the um, historian Tony Judd was once writing about The Captive Mind, the book by Czeslo Milos, which I hope is a reasonable pronunciation of the Polish writer, um, t- who's talking about how intellectuals were um, um, in awe to study Stalin, you know, despite all the wrongs that were clearly going on. And he described the captive mind as the mind which cannot imagine an alternative. And was this the failing of the commentariat and the media all over the world who simply failed to imagine that people could possibly elect Donald Trump and therefore just didn't see it coming? What a learning question for 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Sorry, Harry. Fantastic. <laughs> Um, I think the commentariat is hardly alone in that respect. I think the, uh, you know, it was, this was an unthinkable. It was an unthinkable, but it was also, in retrospect, it looks like an inevitable because, precisely because of the way that the commentariat and the the rest of the media um, just enjoyed the spectacle uh, of Trumpism uh, and Trump himself really far too much. I mean, that, that sounds so moralistic because, after all, it's show business. And, you know, what we're doing here, in a way, is just to carry on that same sort of show business routine Trump really sells. I think the, I think the keynote uh, for this election year was sounded in February by the uh, chief executive of CBS, one of the major American television networks. And he was speaking to a conference, and he said, this whole circus with Trump... It's probably bad for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Mm. And I think that in in some respects, and that was because of the advertising money, it was because of the viewership, it was because people were kind of hooked on the spectacle. And it, 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 there was some bubble, though, where people were living where they could imagine that that spectacle wouldn't lead to the inevitable conclusion. I mean, if it were a TV show, of course Trump would get elected. And it was a TV show, and of course Trump got elected. And I think that that was the, uh, it was the failure to connect those dots, to understand that the, um, that the degree to which this circus had become uh, so spectacularly attractive uh, was actually part of a process that was going to lead to the election. That was the, that, that was the bubble. That was, that was the failure to think that I think uh, that we've all kind of succumbed to because I, I didn't call it any more than you did or anyone else here did. Oh, I went to bed the night of the election absolutely comfortable and slept soundly because clearly Clinton was not just going to win, but actually the polls were wrong. She was going to take the Senate with her too. So I didn't even bother waiting up to see any of it. So that was my perspective. Terry, is Harry's explanation enough? You know, what about that challenge that um, the commentariat just absolutely failed to imagine how other people were thinking and failed to take seriously the alienation um, of people who felt outside the establishment. 
This is an inevitability as a result of the addiction of news media, particularly print news media, over the past 20 years to opinion polls. Because opinion polls are inherently false, particularly if they're done nationally, when county by county, constituency by constituency or state by state is what's going to matter. I I regard it as a tragedy that journalists have ceded their space to opinion polls down through the years. And the opinion polls in this instance uh, were prey to all of the faults that all of the political opinion polls that have led to surprise over Brexit and everything else um, have been subject to. But going back to your incredibly uh, well-researched and intellectual question at the beginning... It does. It sparked um, uh, another person who said this a long, long time ago, as in Cromwell, who, if I remember him rightly, said in Parliament, I beg you in the bowels of Christ to believe that you may be wrong. And in the past two decades, that has been the flaw in the Democrats, in media and in the overwhelmingly coercive liberal consensus that has developed. On the point of the liberal consensus, two two issues. One is that if you're a Democrat, and particularly if you are Hillary Clinton, you believe yourself to be virtuous because of who you are almost by definition. You believe yourself to be virtuous because of your history. That does not engage people right now. And for commentators and others to condemn that syndrome as populism is a great mistake. It is a politician you may not like that any of us around this table may not like reaching out and being engaged with by what was it, 57 million people? That's a lot of people. It's a lot more than the headline in a particular newspaper reflected as the United Hates of America. I do not accept that it was driven by hate. I believe it was driven by engagement. And Hugh, I'm coming back to you on that one because that, that was the Irish Times. That was Fintan O'Toole's piece the, the, the day yeah, before. Yeah, and I have to say the howls of outrage from the Irish Times homepage, as outraged as I was by the election of Trump, it was terribly funny. Uh, you know, d- yeah, defend I mean, there, there, there are elements of the, rea- of, of the reaction to this. I don't include Fintan's piece in this because I thought there was there was quite a lot of truth in what Fintan had to say. I have, I have a real problem with all these what do we tell the children pieces, which I've been reading over the last two or three days. What have you been I mean, telling them before this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'm still trying to explain to them the whole concept of the Electoral College and its roots in 18th century constitutionalism. Once we get over that, we might move on to the the election of Trump with with, with my children. But otherwise, I I think it's important to say, to be rather dull here and to say that the temptation is to see everything in black and white after such what is a kind of cataclysmically shocking event. And um, I think it was David Axelrod, the the, the Obama advisor, who said that, you know, immediately after an election, uh, you know, the people who've just lost are seen as being the, the worst fools in the world and the people who just won are the most brilliant geniuses in the world and this is this is not true there's a huge amount of complexity underlying this result it's not a victory for um for for nazism it's not a defeat for democracy there are elements of of quite scary yeah, but the, things but the in the point there. about it is that overwhelmingly 
the commentary is just absolutely failed to a see it coming and you know we're blinded by polls which we knew were um, um, you know unsound from Brexit and um, and secondly just just uh, completely dismissed the idea that anybody of any rationality well, would vote for Trump well, I, even I, I, though I, actually well, there yeah, are but rational I'm not quite sure I accept the thesis that I mean there is no doubt that that, that there is a liberal bias in, in, in media and in, in most countries in, in, here although I'm not so sure about the UK and maybe we could look at you know that the relationship of UK uh, newspapers uh. with Brexit is, is, is quite different but that's not what happened on this occasion what happened on this occasion was at at, uh, at 8 o'clock Eastern Time in the United States the Republicans thought they'd lost you know, there were there yeah. were noises coming out of the camp. They they were they were saying um, off the record to media organisations that their ceiling was 240 electoral votes, 30 shy of the 270 required to win. Kellyanne Conway was preemptively tweeting on behalf of the Trump campaign that it was the fault of other members of the Republican Party. So it wasn't just a question of liberals looking into the mirror and seeing what they thought they saw there. There was information of various sorts which proved to be wrong. I completely agree with Terry's point about the media abdicating its responsibility and indulging in what I think Professor Jay Rosen in the States uh, invented the phrase horse race journalism. Mm. Mm. That is a that is a huge abdication of what of, of what journalism should be. I think we also need to distinguish between what you describe as the commentariat and what we might call real journalism, which is people actually getting out of the office and going places and finding out facts on the ground and talking to real people. Unfortunately, fewer and fewer newspapers um, and broadcasters can afford to do real sure. journalism. Now, so, so George Carey, from your mm-hmm. perspective, do you think the media failed in its duty, either to see it coming or be to take the Trump supporters seriously, as also happened in Brexit and the polling I, issue? I which think Terry this idea you. of media duty is an odd one. I mean, we're, it's much easier now to look at it with hindsight and say where people made mistakes. Um, the media is such, such a multi-layered operation. To for some people, it is really just defining what makes Tuesday different from Monday. You know, it's the daily news. Of course, there's deeper level journalism. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I just think that um, we have neglected our populations, both in Britain and um, in America. And because politics is so inward looking and by and large journalists are close to the politicians and share that inward looking attitude we just didn't really spot it coming and I think that I think Brexit was obviously a a warning bell to to um, not only the British politicians and the British media though you're right in saying that the British media are absolutely not a liberal consensus Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but in America I think people were not wrong to think it highly improbable that Trump would get elected back in the early days of the primary. But what nobody seemed to read was the message of the primaries themselves, that he, whatever made him an unlikely candidate back then, actually was getting through to people. That was why he's winning the primary votes. And I think Hillary lost because Hillary's campaign was poor. Terry. Very briefly on, on Hugh's point, the fact is that the the newspapers, the big, powerful newspapers, didn't actually do what you were saying we should have done, they should have done, which is go out and find where the people were at. I was very struck and I made a little collection of uh, features from magazines and from the newspapers that carried them. In the last three weeks, 
where they had coverage where our fearless reporter goes out into the depths of Arizona and go, and the problem was that our fearless reporter found frigging stereotypes everywhere our fearless reporter went. It was a honey boo boo kind of uh, coverage where they found predictable working class truck driving males who were furious. But that wasn't what carried Trump into the White House. They missed a whole swatch of voters who weren't talking in that kind I'm of way I'm not sure I completely talk. agree Hugh with Lennon. that. I saw, for example, some good articles in The Atlantic, which is a liberal tilting publication, you know, you know, in ongoing, in-depth, you know, yeah. dis- discussions looking into red states and looking at people who were voting for Trump. And I saw uh, some some good work on, on NPR, National Public Radio yes. as well. Now, you can always find, because media yeah. is so huge, you can always find examples to, to, to prove that case. Mm. And I think it's true. I think, you know, Harry Harry's interjection also illustrates, you know, he's right about the fact that, you know, when we talk about the media, first of all, what are we talking about? I mean, are we these days, are we talking about Twitter? Are we talking about Facebook? Are we talking about cable news, talk radio? Uh, you, th- th- that whole definition of it just being about journalists is, is completely over. Plus, if you look at US newspapers now, most of them are still standing, but most of them ha- are getting about 40% of the revenue that they were getting 10 years ago. Yeah. And that means that Harry's point about journalists that he getting up off their arses and getting out of the newsroom is not encouraged by editorial I don't think newspapers have the budget to do it. But also the question is, what do you actually do if you send a reporter into the field for two days to come back with a feature piece? Yeah, it's a safari. You know, it's it's not just, a, yeah, you, yeah. you see these pieces quite frequently on the telly and they're all nonsense. They just go and see a few <laughs> idiots. And I mean, yeah. they might be highly intelligent people, but what I mean is it doesn't tell you anything. No, but George, what you would need to do is patterns. have somebody covering that story, that story of yeah. that, that insurgency in an in-depth way for six or seven or eight months, which Absolutely. is going to cost you uh, a six-figure sum and it's very uh, difficult that to justify may be true, in the newsroom. But I think there's, a, there's another issue here that, that people... I think I think newspapers in America, insofar as I've seen them via the internet, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, particularly, were vigorous and put a lot of money into unpicking Trump's arguments, trying to say mm. they're, they're all rubbish. The point was that didn't put people off voting for him. It validated yes. his argument. Yeah, that the that media was that biased. Harry, I want to put one thing to you. Hugh mentioned horse race journalism and the other one is insider journalism. So the political journalist that would be most revered is the one who's got the inside information because he's in with the politicians. But then if he's in with the politicians, doesn't that He's going to share a worldview yeah. or she's going to have a yeah. sympathy with the, the candidates. Yeah. Absolutely, it's a problem. And insofar as there were, I think it's really important to say that there were two major insurgencies, one in each of the major American parties this year. And I don't think we can understand fully what's happened in the last week without looking back to the Bernie Sanders insurgency in the Democratic Party. He got 13 million votes in the Democratic primaries, and I think he did damage to Hillary Clinton that she never recovered from. I think that the way he trailed her on the Goldman Sachs question, the way he associated with with Wall Street in particular, I think that followed her right into the polling booths in in the last few days. And I think that we have to understand that insofar as there was a kind of an ideology defeated in this election, and of course we have to remember, defeated by very narrow margins, defeated by the smallest of swings in a handful of states, well, Hillary, well, well, Hillary well, well, won the popular, the popular vote. vote. Yeah. Hillary won the popular vote. But insofar as what we can we can look at the change from the, the Obama uh, coalition to the Clinton one, is that I, uh, I think that we have to read it partly through the filter of how Bernie Sanders was able to 
damage Hillary. In other words, this was a defeat for Clintonian liberalism, mm. for Clintonian neoliberalism, for the idea that you can be on the one hand the Secretary of State, on the other hand raising money from Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The, mm. on the idea that you could be preparing to run for president in a national election and at the same time picking up quarter million dollar checks from Goldman and, Sachs to give secret speeches. And, I think that basic arrogance, that basic trough of of what uh, Trump was able to call corruption. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably corruption is a strong word for it. It's pretty ordinary, the kind of the ordinary stuff of American neoliberal politics. But I think that that's fatally damaged by what uh, by what's and happened I think, here. I, think, I do think that um, uh, Hillary's campaign was really incredibly incompetent. In what way? Well, they didn't react to Bernie Sanders for a start. They, it looked to me as though they they had a campaign strategy which they were so confident would be successful because it was all based upon their strength in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, even Florida, that they never really thought they needed to change tack. They never thought they needed to actually listen to the people who had been going for Bernie Saunders. And it's really important to say that part of their strategy yeah. from early on was to make sure that a Donald Trump-type figure would emerge on the Republican side. We know it, this from WikiLeaks now, yeah. that they thought they were rubbing their hands with glee, yeah. that they were going to get a crazy right-winger on the Republican side, and they would be able to clean their clocks. I, ha I, had a friend, I had a friend inside the Democratic Democratic Party. You know, he wasn't a, a mole or anything. He was just someone who was sending me two, three emails a day about how things were going. And right up until I don't know, three or four days before the thing he was confident that despite the trouble with the FBI despite the trouble with this that and the other, they had the swing states in the bag. They had the key states. And I just couldn't believe it. I kept saying well, are you sure? So you couldn't you know, believe it at the time. I couldn't believe it at the time that he was so confident mm. because it seemed to me that the momentum was with Trump. Well, Terry, what, Terry, 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 what, what, what do you think that confidence Sorry. was based on? You know? I think it was based on a... I suppose they had local polling, but it wasn't very accurate polling. And sure. your point that mm. they relied too much on the polling. But he said, we have a lead in those states. It doesn't really matter about the rest because she'll get to 270 and he won't. But it was a false... A false comfort, I think. Terry Prawn. Two things. First of all, I have, I suspect, been present at the planning of uh, general elections in Ireland for, God help us, perhaps 40 years. And the one thing that has emerged, well, one of the things that has emerged for me is that whenever a party is certain of winning, it doesn't. <laughs> and the certainty, it's not that it gets it wrong. It is that the certainty disables the strategic thinking. It disables its capacity to be mm -hmm. flexible in the face of change. And so the certainty is ultimately what causes the loss. The second thing is in relation to what mainstream media did in relation to this particular election, they did a fantastic job. The Washington Post, the New York York Times um, and some of the websites did the most um, punctilious fact-checking and proved in the main Donald Trump wrong on many things. 
I actually brought uh, Professor Drew Weston to Ireland about 15 years ago to talk to a political party Who's which he? shall be nameless. He wrote a book called The Political Brain. He would be Democrat by inclination, but one of the key points that he made was that people do not vote on facts and data. And once they have made the gut decision to vote for an individual or for a party, thereafter they have the most sophisticated subliminal filtering system that allows them to disregard any incoming facts. And so what I'm really saying is we have to, I don't like any of this post-truth stuff, but the fact is that now we do need, any of us who are working in politics, need to look at the imprinting process by which people decide basically I'm for this person and the possibility that that may not be ameliorated by incoming truth. I think there's a lot of truth in that and I'm a behavioural economics is a hobby of mine and it's all about that system one thinking that you make your gut emotional decision and after that you look for the facts to back it up. But Hugh Linehan, I'm going to do the Use Irish Times question <laughs> to you now. Again, one. I still, Twice in the first I, I still <laughs> think that there's this failure. And fine, in Ireland it's the Irish Times, but in America it's the New York Times. In Britain it's the Guardian. This idea that our opinions make us virtuous, pious people. And how can you possibly not agree with us? This makes you a moron and, indeed and a bad person. And indeed person. we've seen some of that in American yeah. and, 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 and other media over the last week. So I, th- there, is, there is something odd that goes on in terms of coverage of, of the United States elections. I think Harry hinted at it earlier on, which is we do treat them like a, like an entertainment series, like a, like a new Netflix, you know, goodie that's just landed in our inbox. And we, we see them through the filter of the West Wing and movies and they're sort of their politics but their politics was extra glamour and sparkle. And also because, for the most part, people don't feel that they're actually as directly emotionally in, or financially invested in their outcome. You know, I may have an opinion about American healthcare, but it's not going to affect my healthcare, uh, you know, in, in, in any direct kind of way. So it gives, uh, because I accept your point, it gives people an opportunity to virtue signal even more in that regard because they're not direct, you know, directly invested in the outcome. Plus there is, you know, people... I think people forget, I lived in the States for a couple of years in the 80s uh, um, and one of the things that struck me spending quite a lot of time there is, I don't know if anybody else agrees, I know you live there sometimes, Terry, do you? Mm-hmm. Don't you? Is that on the surface, it, they seem to be just like us. They speak the same language. We're very familiar with their culture because we're saturated by all their popular culture and increasingly by their media because we can now read the New York Times just like they do. But you spend some time there and you realise that in many ways they're actually deeply foreign. They're very stra- They're very strangely different in all kinds of ways. They're more foreign than the French or the German are, who and the Germans are, who may seem on the surface to be uh, to be yeah, more culturally no, yeah, different. And so that the way that people think about politics, the way they think about their own personal narrative stories and how they set those in terms of the way that they operate in society is really quite profoundly different. Yes, know? but now you've done what a politician did and you didn't answer the question. And Which I'm is? Supposed to go to a break but um, when there's, I imagine look I've never been at a newspaper editorial meeting I write yeah. columns but I just write them at home and bang them in so I'm mm. not in an office and I don't mm. really know how it works but I imagine that there's an editorial meeting and you know there's lots of significant people in the room is there somebody saying look clearly an awful lot of people even if we don't think they're going to win this referendum Brexit a general election US presidential election are thinking differently to us 
we really, really, really need to find out why they're thinking this way because it just looks like it's but, just column but, after column Sarah, after column. Sarah, thinking. you clearly haven't been reading Simon Carswell's reports yeah. on the election for the last 12 months because he's been out and about all the time talking to people, whether they be political activists or ordinary people, because I'm not sure of this whole anthropological exercise of when I get in a car and I go and I find it a man the with a red baseball cap Harry and talk right. to him. Yeah. You know, but Simon's yeah. been doing an awful lot more than that. And if, if, if it's time for me to blow my trumpet for the Irish Times, I Please say, do. we're the only bloody newspaper in Ireland that's actually put the resources into having Simon there all the time, having Ruin McCormick there for, for, you know, for the last month or so, and actually doing that and talking to those people. Yes, there is no doubt that in that editorial meeting you talk about, I can reveal the fact that 98% <laughs> of those people are probably horrified by the election of Trump, as am I myself. I don't necessarily think that's incredibly out of whack with what the Irish population thinks about Trump. My, my, well, we my, are the 51st blue state. My, ge- my guess would be that somewhere between 70, 70-75% of Irish people would rather have seen Hillary Clinton be elected. Yeah, there, although, you know, And there's a variety of cultural and political reason, yeah, reasons. Yeah, although that, I, know? Was I, in a, I, I was in a hardware shop yesterday and somebody was saying, you know what, we could elect a Trump, we could do it. Well, there's I no d- difference between somebody saying that and somebody saying, I want to elect a Trump. Yes, I agree. Know? George, one of your, um, the current um, editor of um, Newsnight, Ian Katz, wrote an article in the Financial Times a couple of years ago complaining about the death of the political interview. And he charted this terrible demise that you had people like Terry training politicians not to answer questions. Don't accept that as a premise. Okay, that's fine. Now, she's challenged the premise of the question, <laughs> yes. which is one of the things she would teach a politician to do. No, I wouldn't. And <laughs> <laughs> And then you've got journalists who really want to make the interview all about them and they must humiliate the politician. So there's this standoff. And in a political interview, nobody wins, nobody learns, nobody finds out anything. Now, what do you think of that? Is the political uh, interview dead? Well, I think the uh, his article, as I recall it, is tosh, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to base a whole argument about the future of the political interview around an interview with Liz Kendall. I mean, give me a break. Uh, It was true that back then when they were trying to, um, various hopeless politicians were standing for the the leadership of the Labour Party, the political, what you were getting out of political interviews was hopeless. You know, the politicians were all walking on eggshells. They were talking non-language to avoid saying anything interesting. And that does happen. But the political interview is what editors like Ian make of a political interview, what orders they give people. I mean, he is, he's got the freedom, if he wants to, to devote all an edition of Newsnight to a political interview if he really thinks he's going to get it out, get something out of it. I think what is true, certainly, is that the politicians have around them hordes of advisers who tell them what what to say and what not to say. And so the politicians often do themselves a huge disservice. I, I was the executive producer of the BBC's Question Time programme for a long time, 10 years or so. And we always could tell who, were go- who was going to be the stars. And it was they were the people who stepped out of line, who didn't obey the orders from um, people like you, may I say? No, or don't, don't. No, 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 I went, I'm I went, I went, I went. Okay, 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 okay. But who were not talking the party language because they immediately communicated with the audience who could spot political talk from real talk. And the classic example, that Boris Johnson, who arose out of nowhere by just making jokes about his own party's policy on question time. You know, I mean, other things too. But it's that ability to 
um, dare to say something that isn't in the party manifesto yeah. and isn't the, isn't going to get might or might not get the whips upset. Who cares? That makes politicians work these days. Terry Prome. Yeah, there's a number of things, both in your question and in what George has said, that are assumptions uh, that generalise all media training. 90% of media training is lousy because it is given by retired journalists or broadcasters who have just moved over because the pressure got too much in the studio. (laughs) Um, And therefore you have... Names, Terry, what names? (laughs) Later, later. Um, Therefore you have advice like you have to be more punchy but more pronouncedly what you get in bad media training is precisely what George says. You get advisors who are really good at framing thoughts or writing headlines and they want to insert those into the mouths of the politicians. If you read the books that I have written which reveal all about our kind of media training, the communications clinic approach, it is that that is absolutely banned. You must never, ever put words into a politician's mouth. You must, on the other hand, remove from them by amputation everything to do with their party manifesto because it is always written in conceptual language, which is not the language of radio and television which is where they can persuade and engage people. The three rules of really good political communication are that you be interesting, you be understandable and you be memorable. So why don't they do it? it is a hell of a task. Some of them are too stupid. Some of them are uh, bluntly too embedded in the manner of communication that got them where they were. Some of them, and it's an interesting point about the American situation, Some of them are really good communicators as candidates, but get almost frozen and fossilised by role when they get into it. I mean, Obama, for example, was the best candidate in communication terms ever. He was impassioned, he was magical, he was persuasive. But he was much less magical and persuasive as the president in role. Um, So, Harry Brown, you're teaching journalism. So, I mean, do you teach what someone should try and get out of a political a political interview and what is it? I don't teach that class, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that, you know, that what Terry says is right there. That, uh, and, and I think that the, the, the premise that the, there's a basic problem with the way most political interviews are conducted is right. I think we also have to see that the way nowadays that most people experience a political interview is in the 15-second clip that their friends have decided to put up on, on Facebook. And that's a, that's really a fundamental change as well. So, you know, very occasionally someone will put up a longer clip where we get to see the give and take, the pull and the, mm-hmm. and the challenge, etc. But that's not really how most of us experience politics. And again, go back to the American election. I mean, part of the, the genius of Trump was the way he brought the game into the foreground and then sort of refused to play it on the terms that the had, had been previously set. So a lot of journalists actually who were following the Trump campaign early on found it found him kind of refreshing. I mean, he is shockingly inarticulate. And, you know, grammar is a foreign language to him. But, uh, yeah, he, but is, in- he is ex- extraordinarily good at, you know, that, that couple of lines that's a little bit self-deprecating, uh, you know, cutting about his opponents. I mean, like cutting in ways that are shocking from the point of view of how normal, polite, even or normal, even impolite politics was conducted previously. And again, he, he did this 
he did this spectacle and the, and the media ate it up. And not just but, the but media, Hugh. people, people. I mean, the opinion polls yes. again, but the opinion polls show that he won on the grounds of authenticity. That the word authenticity yeah. comes up again and again, but which seems so strange. Thing, but the extraordinary thing about the authenticity is that he was telling lies most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but um, And yet it didn't matter. That, I mean, you but may not, Terry, Terry, like this business of post-truth, but it's a, it's a reality it with us. The mm-hmm. point is that once you know i've been in this business for donkey's years now and there was a time the famous alan clark saying about economical with the actuality that <laughs> that was about being uh, acknowledging that politicians obfuscated and didn't really tell the truth but not wanting to be actually caught in a lie now they don't care because the public don't care the but your lie your lie can become authentic care. as well i mean authenticity Absolutely. is a construct in itself the old gag about the politician you know that the first thing you need to learn as a politician is, is sincerity once mm. you have that you can fake everything else yeah. Yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. in a way what trump does as a product product yeah. of our new media age of reality television right. and so on is he foregrounds all that and you know the polls show yeah. that people accepted that he lied that he didn't tell the truth that he did a whole bunch of things which up until this election would have been seen as disqualifying and they just sucked it all up and, yeah. and actually appreciated it right but I want yes. to go back to Harry though so in that Ian Katz article he quotes former Blair Spinner, Spinner Tim Allen who decried this style of interviewing as punk political journalism it was he complained journalism that puts the journalist centre stage it judges itself by how many hits it can rack up against the subject any communication by the politician on his or her terms is regarded as a failure so in other words the starting premise of a political interview is humiliate the politician get them to say something embarrassing if you get a resignation fantastic mm. and personally I can't listen to it yeah, I cannot the old, listen the, the, to the, it the, the Paxman premise why is this lying so and so lying to me you know, yeah. that, that's what I'm it reveals gonna, yeah. nothing yeah. no one learns anything so is that something that we should try and fix I think that the premise of, of your question is that, that, that these interviews are somehow important and I just oh, think that they, I just okay. think that they aren't. I think that you know that's that's pretty much over the notion that the. Uh, I mean, okay, yes, occasionally there's a Twitter storm out of an interview, and that's that makes it seem like it's important. But I think increasingly that's not how politics happens. Politics happens in in these in the sense of kind of a communal rush. Actually, that comes actually, from, I disagree yeah. with that, Terry. I'll put oh no, Hugh, I'll put it well, to you. So no, and I just want to say why I disagree with it. That I think that this constant hectoring, sneering tone that all the politicians are the lying bastards lying to us means that people then when they go to vote accept the premise that all politicians are in some form or other corrupt or inept or useless and therefore they might as well vote for a Trump because he can't be any worse and that's the role the corrosive role there is, the there is, there is no. I, I do agree with that oh. there is no doubt that coverage that broadcast coverage and print coverage and I have no doubt also that this is driven by some of the market pressures which are around on media organisations at the moment uh, is is based upon this idea that all politicians are lying conniving crooks which anybody who knows politicians know is not the case they are human beings with all their with all the flaws and and advantages that, that 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 normal human beings have but i i I take Harry's point, but I think that other things are going on. I suppose one of the things to say about Newsnight is, with all due respect to, to George's... That's right, never a good way you, when you're n- beginning... Newsnight has always been an, 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 an elite minority, you know, taste oh. for, for a kind of a, for a particular subset of, of, of the UK population. Aww. It's not watched by, by half the people every night on a regular basis. And, you know, it's not all about what is the, what is the most significant mass phenomenon. And I think what's... I present a podcast. Um, I'm not saying it's the best podcast in the world, but what I would say is that the dynamic of that 
works differently because it's a different medium. So this question of time, I've also presented radio programs. On a radio program, you're very constrained by time. People, whether they were trained by Terry or by one of her inferior competitors, <laughs> know how to get through a four to five minute, uh, you know, slice of time. And they know that the ad break is coming and they, they know they can stonewall. You can't stonewall in a podcast in the same way. And it's not because um, it, it, it's not the, it's, it's not just that people want to stonewall all the time. They need to engage in a different level because you're in a different medium. I've done print interviews. They work in a different kind of a dyna- dynamic as well. I think the point I, I do actually agree, I think, with the core of Ian Katz's point. So I disagree with George here because I think that old school broadcast interviews, whether for television or on radio, are in terrible trouble and they've become debased. And I'm not sure if they can be retrieved. From I, that. Look, first of all, that you're this idea that every single interview is a Jeremy Paxman sneering at a politician is not true. Jeremy himself doesn't sneer at all Absolutely. the politicians' interviews. Right. It's, a, it's a ridiculous generalisation for a start. Um, there are a few like that, and actually they're memorable because on the occasion, say, Michael Howard refusing yeah. to... He was lying through his teeth, but wanting, funnily enough, unlike Trump wanting not to lie so he <laughs> tried to find a way not to Trump would have just told a fib and have done with it so it does occasionally have a function what you're talking about though is not to do with the death of the political interview but the death of broadcasting yes. that's a quite different issue I quite agree with that I mean one of the things that's clearly um, happening uh, when we going back to our earlier discussion about why Trump why Brexit that sort of thing is because all these broadcasters and journalists and people who were trying to sort of gather around this morning to blame them in some way <laughs> are just talking into the void because the information is reaching people through other sources and other algorithms that are giving them the stuff they want to hear and so on. So that's a different discussion and I absolutely buy into that. But I don't think it's peculiar to the political interview is my point. Now, no, I Terry, I am supposed to take a break, but I will let you in on this <laughs> one. Okay. <laughs> Um, George was talking earlier about that magical moment in a television broadcast involving a politician where the politician steps out of the predictable and talks the truth. Um, When I meet people, particularly journalists, who ask me about uh, training politicians, uh, one of the things that brings me great joy is when they say to me, well, so-and-so would never need you um, because they're totally authentic and, and I know... I have trained so-and-so, thank you very much. <laughs> More to the point, because the the interests of the interviewer and the interests of the politician should be not the same, but in parallel, which is to be interesting and truthful to the people who are listening. Now, if you have a situation where, as, as happened to me last week, uh, Some politicians know that in the past and in the present, I also train broadcasters. Mm. And a particular politician rang me and said, did you train so-and-so? And And I said, it's none of your business. Why? And he said, because he won't let me finish a sentence. I'm genuinely trying to be interesting. I'm trying to answer the question he has just asked Mm. me. And he won't. And I do believe that there is an ongoing function in radio and television stations to prevent the leakage of audience to Hughes podcasts of people who just want to hear the lengthy, elaborated truth and who are st- 
stopped from hearing that by this thing of the showbiz. Well, I'll show you. I can ask you the the tough questions and I won't let you waffle in any way. And the minute you bore me, I'm going to cut across you. I do think there is a balance to be struck. At the moment, what we're seeing is a fairly considerable migration away from mainstream media, particularly radio and television, at a time when many interviewers believe that it is public conflict that sells best, whereas podcasts where calm elucidation of ideas happens, including National Public Radio, I would put in the same uh, bracket, um, are gaining their sector of Yes, I, I personally, I don't know why, therefore broadcast management don't see that and change something but um, well, guests do say this is one of the free shows where they are allowed to finish the sentence. <laughs> Michael on Twitter says the job for media now is to be heard in the cacophony of social media. It's virtual, viral and vicious. And Kevin says top quality discussion and talking points. Thank you very much Kevin. Uh, Jerry says so-called public service broadcasters like RTE, BBC, Channel 4 and CNN and others have been taken over by PC liberals. Um, somebody else says Trump got less votes than Romney and McCain did which is true. Hillary lost because six million people voted third party more than the past four elections combined also a lot of Democrats didn't come out to vote for Kate says why is it that the print also radio cannot get it that people can think for themselves we have a good feeling of what is going on in the world and don't like it so Brexit and Trump happened for me the people won out on both with so much against them well done and great point Terry or radio has a chance to allow greater elaboration etc and differentiate from short messaging and sound bites and Peter Longford said we've been electing idiots and morons for years why the feigned shock and surprise. <laughs> and finally to Hugh. Great debate uh, this morning. Just on Hugh's point, do we take it for granted how easy now it is to read the New York Times? Just read an article on it via Facebook. So Hugh, um, business models. Well, for, first of all, just to say that as a consumer of news, it's a, it's a great time to be alive because I have access to all the best journalism and all the best newspapers in the world, mostly for free or else for a very, 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 very small amount of money. So that's fantastic. But it does bring with it its own challenges as well. And now journalists are often accused of being defensive about this at the loss of the gatekeeper model and the old business business model and all those kinds of things. And those are huge challenges. Indeed, they are. But even apart from the business model, the primary challenge facing our business model right now is Facebook, because increasingly it's the filter through which people find stuff that may be of interest to them amidst all that abundance. But there are there are significant issues with that. And one of them is, is that anybody who uses Facebook regularly knows that everything's essentially undifferentiated. You can't tell the difference between that six months of research that went into the New York Times article that pops mm. up into your feed and the very odd but strangely compelling piece of clickbait that may well have been placed by Russia Today or somebody like that who I may have slightly different faith in it all looks the same or indeed the absolutely bonkers you know blog of, of some sort um, and all those things get mashed in together and it really becomes a problem I think for professional journalism if you do value professional journalism because people don't value it in the same way Actually, because all these little signals that they used to have to say this has the imprimatur of a proper professional reputable you know it's funny we we had a clip, but we don't have time to play it. But Barack Obama was making that precise point to Bill Maher during the week, this balkanization, you know, of coverage and how you pick it out. Harry Brown, um, the tension between heat versus light, you know, the nice, calm, civilised discussion versus Vincent Brown, which people seem to like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in <laughs> fact, I mean, I've seen politicians come out of getting a battering by Vincent Brown and they're smiling. They just think that was all part of the show. And I do think that the notion that we're in the business of shedding light 
I, I just feel like it's hard to to defend that in the in in, in the Hawks, current cacophony. That in fact we are in the business for the most part of generating heat and of generating revenue and of generating and, audiences. And sorry, and, are you, you know, saying that's how it is or how it should be? No, no, that's that's how it is. Yeah. That's how it is. I mean, it's lovely to think about the capacity we do get sometimes to shed light. I mean, arguably, an hour-long discussion like this one it does hopefully shed a little bit of light. But, but for the most one size part, fits all, Harry. You yeah, can have both yeah. of those things happen. Harry, no, and I know people yeah. are genuinely curious, but I think that there's a there's a degree to which we're kind of, you know, we're we're not asking, we're still not asking the right questions. Like we say, okay, have we have we covered the Trump movement, and maybe we have, but have we covered the Sanders movement? Have we covered the water movement in Ireland? And I think that those sort of basic structural biases still need to be addressed. Terry, very briefly, um, the New York Times this week has exemplified world opinion which is one of fear, horror, disbelief. We practically had the whole Kubler-Ross sequencing of reaction to the election of Donald Trump. The New York Times exemplified the same kind of reaction a little while back. They regarded the elected president as a gobshite from rural America who had no principles, who was crooked, who was unspeakably unfit to be president. He turned out to be Abraham Lincoln. Let's look at a little hope rather than total depression. George, do you go along with that? Well, I certainly don't think it'd be as bad as was predicted, largely because Trump is a sort of actor. He acted the role of vandal to bash his way into Washington. Now that he's there, he'll be the paternalistic figure and a different sort of fellow will emerge. Whether he will make mayhem as well is another matter but it's not what we expect it's going to be I think so too that was George Carey speaking he's the founding editor of Newsnight and he's in Dublin this weekend for the Claron Media Conference you can go to claronmedia.com for that so look that is it for today many thanks to my guests for coming in this morning Marion Kennedy was on sound Aidan McKelvey researched Stephen Jordan produced and thank you for listening <laughs> 